I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass, busted draft pick, and game-changing play. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow and listen to Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. I mean, the possibilities are limitless, Kevin. What if Portland drafted Michael Jordan? What if the NBA never vetoed the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers? That's a butterfly effect for real. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. The following is a presentation of Radio.com Sports. Radio.com Sports presents Big Time Baseball. It's brought to you by the 2019 Mercedes-Benz A-Class. This is Josh Lewin alongside John Heyman. Thank you again for joining us. I know a lot of you have found this as a habit. We appreciate that. Every week we are bringing you insight into the top storylines across Major League Baseball. That's, of course, right now playoffs and uh, managerial upheaval. So we're talking with Dayton Moore, the Royals GM, about what's next over there. We're talking about what's next for the Mets with MLB.com Mets beat writer Anthony DiComo, the two teams that went at it head-to-head in the World Series just four years ago. are both blowing things up. We're big-time baseball. We're part of Radio.com. That allows you to uh, listen to your favorite radio stations free of charge anytime, anywhere. Radio.com Sports is on Twitter at RDC Sports. Make sure you subscribe to us, please. Big Time Baseball is the name. And Big Time John Heyman, shuffling papers, getting his notes in order, ready to talk playoff baseball. And we're recording this, full disclosure, on Monday. And it's possible that all four division series will go kablam on Monday. That's only happened once before. It was about 23 years ago, I guess, that there were four series all decided on one day. So not knowing what's going on quite yet exactly, John, let me start you with the juggernaut Astros. I mean, is there a way to knock these guys down at all? Because Garrett Cole uh, just had another complete masterpiece. Uh, and obviously Verlander is Verlander, and these guys hit everything and everybody. So who stops Houston and how? Yeah, that's an excellent question. At this point, they do look like a juggernaut. And full disclosure, as I probably said on every podcast every week, I I picked the Dodgers over the Astros. I always stick with my pick unless they're eliminated, so we still have them alive. But right now, I think it's fair to say the Astros are the favorite to beat them. A team is going to have to beat one or the other of Verlander or Cole. They are the two best pitchers in baseball this year. I don't think there's any argument there. Uh, Both have been dominant. It reminds you of the Arizona in 2001 when they had 
uh, Johnson and Schilling. And, of course, uh, Yankees took them to seven games, actually had a lead, as we recall. And uh, Arizona did win with Johnson and Schilling. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, it seems like they're a major favorite, and it's going to take something um, unusual to knock them off at this moment. They, they do look that good right now. They get Zach Greinke to come in at the trade deadline, and he's been predictably unconscious. Worst ever interview for a uh, for a post game. For a, uh, yeah, you know what? Uh, you know what? He's my best interview at times. But yes, you're right. Post game with a group, he's incredibly bad. And what did they say? He had 23 words, and then they later uh, replayed it and found that he whispered uh, for 15 more words or something. And they were, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, they found 38 words or something that he said to the Terrific. seven questions. It was something unbelievable. Uh, makes, but, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if he makes Kawhi Leonard sound like Ellen DeGeneres, it's absolutely <laughs> unbelievable with that. But, but he, you know, obviously you bring him in, you look at the fact that Houston has this incredible home record, 60 and 21, I guess it was. And, you know, the Yankees at 62 and 19, uh, they might have found that to be helpful had they not faded down the stretch in September, maybe finished with the, the overall best record. Who knows if it's a, a Yankees Astros and uh, it comes to a game seven, a subtle thing like that. I do want to ask you about the Yankees and they're up against the Twins, who you very proudly, we've been beating this drum all year. You predicted they'd win, not 101 games, which they did. But now here they are getting lawnmowered by the Yankees. And, uh, I mean, that's nothing new. They've lost, no. I mean, every single time they have to face the Yankees, they get destroyed by the Yankees. But it just seems like the Twins, I don't know if it's that the, the stage was too big, John, or, or, you know, exactly how you want to describe it. But, uh, you know, everybody loved the, the cute story about, hey, you got an Uber driver on the mound, ha-ha. But at some point, <laughs> you know, isn't it about the, the Yankees just kind of spitting on mediocre pitches they just kind of twist them away foul like ah eh, no thank you i'll wait for the next one they'll either walk or they'll hit one 450 feet and i just got to think that the twins know that two games into this series yeah they're they're in a tough spot i think we knew that coming in uh this was very predictable more predictable than the twins winning the division and thank you for giving me credit once again that's a You're tradition welcome. uh we finally got rid of the is callaway going to be fired on every podcast tradition so but the twin tradition will <laughs> We'll keep that one alive for now. Uh, you know, even when they had completely different players, it didn't matter. Uh, Minnesota and the Yankees, uh, there's something going on there. Uh, it is true that the pitching uh, differential, and I know a lot of people criticize the Yankees starting pitching, but it, it's it's pretty solid. Uh, the Twins, uh, you know, not a major market. Uh, they can't afford to have superstars at every position. They've done a terrific job. Uh, we had Ted Levine on. Uh, Derek Falvey, they've they really done a great job. Their pickups were fantastic. Their manager, uh, Baldelli, incredible. But they, they just don't have the pitching uh, to shut down the Yankees. And that's really the bottom line, even beyond the fact that it appears they're psyched out. You don't want to say that, but it's an organizational thing. I'm not blaming any one person. Uh, Yankees are tough, and they are very tough at home. Maybe Minnesota can win a game or two uh, in Minnesota to go back and beat New York in New York, uh, that's going to be a, a tall order. And you mentioned the Uber driver. Uh, yeah, 499 record as an Uber driver. That looks better than his postseason record <laughs> now. Uh, Randy Dobnak, uh, great story. Just got married on September 28th. Was very nervous about getting married in the season. He wasn't expecting it. He'd been an independent league pitcher and a, and a great Uber driver. Uh, didn't, didn't think he was going to be uh, on a major league team. So it's a nice story. Uh, good for them. But uh, – 
they drew, you know, they drew the wrong team. If they if they drew Houston, they're not so lucky either. But the Yankees were not the right team for Minnesota to draw. Let me get you just real quick on the Cardinals Braves series, which has had, and it's funny because that you know to me was kind of like the uh, the most vanilla matchup, and, and now it's not because you've got Carlos Martinez popping off. Everybody's got an opinion about Acuna. Uh, I mean, there's all of a sudden like big personalities coming out of this particular series. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Cunha got uh, killed uh, for uh, a couple of things that happened in game one, but he is an extraordinary talent. I found it funny when a few people uh, suggested he should be benched uh, for kind of Cadillacing it on a on a ball that hit it high off the wall. It wasn't the home run that he thought it was. And then uh, after he did hit a home run and they're still losing, uh, he, he made a show of it, uh, rounding the bases and upsetting uh, Martinez, as you mentioned. Uh, Acuna seems like a nice young man. Uh, he is very young. He is a very immature. They can't bench him. At some point, he needs to mature a little bit beyond this. The Braves uh, probably have the better team, but the Cardinals are a great postseason organization. They've always uh, showed well. They've got to figure out the closing situation. Carlos Martinez, I'm not sure. They paid him $50 million. Uh, this this is not a team that likes to waste money, and now they have him as a reliever, uh, closer, and I'm not sure that's the right role for him. Uh, he's been struggling there, and uh, they've got to figure that out if they're going to have a chance here. Atlanta is, I've underrated them all along. Uh, they're a dangerous and tough team. All right, let's finish up before we get to our guest talking Dodgers and Nationals. And when Soto hits the two-run home run in game three to get things going, and that place is just so noisy, you're thinking, you know what? The Nationals could do this. I mean, they win this game. They get one more at home. They don't even have to go back to L.A. Then all of a sudden, you, you get something you'd never seen before in Dodger postseason history, all the way to their days back in Brooklyn. They had never had a seven-run inning in the postseason ever before. And, boy, you talk about the air coming out of a balloon. So uh, where do you see this series? Again, we're, we're taping this on a Monday, and, and maybe it's already done by the time you guys are listening to this. But uh, Dodgers Nationals, what's your, your take right now? Well, I, I always stick with my original prediction, and I had the Dodgers winning the World Series. So they have to win this uh, encounter here with the Nats to do that. That was a scary moment there for them, being down 2-0 and knowing that you're going to get Strasburg in Game 5, you're going to get Scherzer in Game 4, and you'd have to beat them both. Now they only have to beat one of them. Certainly the Nats feel okay about their situation because they have two of the best pitchers in baseball going. But, uh, I mean, I think that was a, just a great sign for L.A. to see Bellinger, who had been – really struggling in the postseason. And it's not just Bellinger. Uh, if you look at it historically, Kershaw has not been the same guy in the postseason. Jansen has not been the same guy in the postseason. And Bellinger, who's likely going to win the NL MVP, either him or Yelich, uh, has not been great in the postseason. Here he is coming off this MVP season, and he had been struggling mightily. To see him get two hits in that inning, I think that was huge. Because uh, no matter how deep a team you are, you've got Freeze coming off and the bench and doing well. You've got Chris Taylor. It seems like they have two rosters. They're so good. Uh, you need an, another hitter in the middle of the lineup going. You cannot just have Justin Turner uh, carry your team in the middle of that lineup. And uh, he's a fantastic postseason player. Uh, you know, he's like the uh, smaller uh a uh, more recent version of Reggie Jackson, incredible. He just loves the postseason, but they needed Bellinger, and that was a great sign for L.A. So I, I think they'll hang on, but, uh, you know, the Nats are giving him, they're giving him a go, and uh, good for Washington. Well, you mentioned Bellinger as a possible MVP. Next week, we'll start to get into some of the regular season awards and what we think should happen, but we got a jam-packed show here today. 
managerial upheaval. We'll get to that in the final segment. But coming up, Dayton Moore, the Kansas City Royals GM on what's next for them and a take on uh, how to approach things when you do get into October. That's here with Big Time Baseball. Hey, everybody. Cody Decker here from Swings and Misses, the Radio.com Sports Original, here to talk to you about 4hims.com. 4hims.com is your one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. 66% of men lose their hair by age 35. And you know what? I'm 32, and I've been taking hims for three weeks now. Baseball did everything it could to take my hairline away from me, whether it was just wearing a helmet, wearing a hat, or my managers just not playing me. My hair was going away. And I'm 32 years old, and I don't want to be part of this statistic anymore. Thanks to science, baldness can be optional. Hims is helping guys be the best versions of themselves with licensed physicians and FDA-approved products to help you regrow your hair. 4Hims connects you to real doctors online. Get the hair loss treatment everybody's talking about, featured in GQ, Men's Health, Playboy, just to name a few. Not to mention, I talk about it every day on our Radio.com original Swings and Misses. Go to 4 slash swings. That's 4Hims, F-O-R-A. H-I-M-S dot com slash swings. So awfully excited to bring on Royals general manager Dayton Moore to talk about his team's past season and what's coming up in the future. Maybe get into some other things with Dayton, too, who's just a really interesting person, as well as a really knowledgeable baseball guy. But got to touch on on Yost and the managerial situation, Dayton. Uh, how difficult was it just to know that a move was going to be made? And where are you in the process going forward now? Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's, um, we've known, you know, for about a year or so that, that Ned was, um, perhaps thinking about, you know, stepping aside or, or maybe doing something else. And, and, uh, it became very clear when we sat down together, uh, this past season at the all-star break and, uh, Ned decided that, you know what, maybe it's, it's in the best interest of him and his family and the organization uh, for him to uh, to retire. So, you know, we we began to, to kind of manage through that. And, uh, you know, we're so thankful that it worked out the way it did. I mean, Ned was able to depart here in Kansas City uh, on a very high note. He was celebrated by the fans, by our organization, and in leadership. Truly, that, that's, that's the scenario we all dream about that's what we wish for in leadership that the the people that you work closely with are celebrated you know when their when their time comes when they're going to to move on to something else ned has earned that it's been amazing working with him Uh, i've known him uh since 1997 uh when he was with the braves when i first came in the office you know with the braves as the assistant director of scouting and um you know I, i i liked work i liked being around him i was always um, attracted to Ned's positivity and his energy. That didn't change, uh, you know, his entire time here in Kansas City. It's special to be able to, to work with him. And, and so now, obviously, we're in a position where we are in the process of, of uh, searching uh, for a new manager, uh, going through that process. We have yet to go through a formal interview. Uh, like a lot of organizations right now, we are uh, vetting candidates. Uh, we always look internally first. We we do that with every position, whether it's an area scout, scouting director, farm director, assistant general manager, uh, bullpen coach, and we're certainly going to do that with a managerial position. I, I think we have several people internally um, that 
are, are qualified um, to to manage. Some have managed before, and Dale Swain and Mike Matheny, uh, Pedro Grafal. We we believe in in his abilities. Uh, he is um, he's done excellent uh, work for us. He's been a part of of a lot of things that that we have done uh, in an organization and, and a part of our success. Vance Wilson who is our bullpen coach um, currently. You know, he managed uh, throughout our minor league system, um, highly respected, you know, by our players. And so, um, you know, all those guys that are, are strong, strong candidates, uh, you know, not only for us, but for other organizations as well. You know, lots being said about, you know, Mike Matheny and, and him, being you know our guy and i understand why people would think that but we're, we're going through the process and mike Matheny is uh you know he's, he's pretty highly sought out you know by other organizations as well so you know he has options and um but again we're just going through that process and keeping an open mind uh we, we feel good about our core group of young position players uh, we really love what Merrifield uh, continues to do, what Hunter Dozier was able to accomplish, Jorge Soler, Alberto Mondesi is, uh, I think, one of the, the best um, talents in the game, just needs to get more consistent, which he's working on that. And then, of course, um, you know, Salvador Perez will, will be back. Nicky Lopez, I felt, took a step forward. And, uh, you know, so again, we, we like our our young uh, position players, and we just got to do a better job uh, developing pitching, acquiring pitching, and, uh, you know, we're in the process of, of looking at all that. So a lot going on. Dayton, uh, John Heyman here. Uh, your, your hiring of uh, Ned Yo certainly worked out, and I would say that many of us, myself included in, in the media, uh, kind of raised our eyebrows, and uh, some of us even thought that was probably not the right hire, and it turned out to be – exactly the right hire two world series uh, appearances a world series victory not easy for a small market team so uh you went for experience and a guy that you knew and i think that's why a lot of people are looking at uh, mike Matheny as a favorite uh, for you here uh, i think you're in good position like the cubs are the cubs have th- several strong in-house candidates they have david david ross i think theo actually did a tells calling him rossi giving him a nickname you haven't done that with Matheny yet but uh david ross they have, you have venable and they have loretta you mentioned grafal swaim vance wilson and Matheny. now Matheny. um like Yost, uh, got a lot of criticism at the end of his tenure in St. Louis and uh, seemed to have uh, an issue with the media in St. Louis. I'm not sure why. I like Mike. Uh, I've always gotten along with him, and uh, I think he's been fine generally, at least with the uh, national media. Um, uh, what, what You brought him into the organization a year ago. Uh, how has he done in his role there, and what else would you say about Mike uh, – it leads you to think that he's a strong candidate there. Well, John, great question. I mean, I, I first of all, it, it's a leadership position, period, and um, we, we all recognize that. And you know, I'm not in the camp that uh, buys into the logic that think the, the managerial position really isn't that crucial, doesn't really have much impact on the outcomes of games. And I'm just not in that camp. I saw Bobby Cox lead for many years. I know what he meant to our culture. I know what he meant to the clubhouse. I knew how uh, the players uh, aspired to play for him. 
Uh, I saw the same thing here with Ned. And again, in this game, you can you can come up with a reason to get rid of every single one of us at any point in time in our careers. You could have got Pat Gillick. You could have got John Scherholz. You could have got Joe Torre. You could have got Tony Larusa. You sure the heck can get Dayton Moore. And and so I mean we we make enough decisions. We make enough mistakes over the course of one season, let alone a body of career where a body of, of work in our careers where you can uh, uh, pick us apart. You can justify change being necessary and and required. Okay, so that's just part of it. So my 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 first question always is, what are we learning uh, from our mistakes? What are we learning each day? How are we growing from them? What type of influences are we uh, having around us that are speaking truth into our lives and helping mold us and shape us and help uncover our blind spots? Because we all have them, and so. Um, you know, when I work with somebody like, whether it be Ned Yost, after he went through what he went through, or Mike Matheny, uh, the first thing, you want to be able to see if there's chemistry there, whether you can work together. Because the bottom line is, you've got to enjoy working with the manager. Those people that think that it's not that big of a deal, when you're with someone every single day, um, I want to enjoy the relationship and uh, and the time together. And people would ask me along the way, how come you stayed with Ned Yost? Um, and in fact, in 2013, at the end of the year, going to a pre- going to the end of the year press conference, listening to members of our media, some of them said this. They said the only thing I want to hear Dayton Moore say today is Ned Yost is fired. And so people would ask that question: Why did you stay with Ned Yost? And the first thing I'd always say is: One, I enjoyed working with him. And so, what can I say about Mike Matheny? Well, Mike Matheny's been here an entire year. Uh, he's worked with J.J. Piccolo, who is an amazing leader. He's worked with Scott Sharp, who is an amazing leader and a very smart and capable person. Our scouting director, Lonnie Goldberg, Renee Francisco, who runs our international department, who is one of the more balanced people I know in this game and consistent thinkers. Uh, our training staff, our current major league staff, he's worked with all of these individuals, and they all come back and say the same thing. This guy's an amazing leader. This guy cares. He asks great questions. Um, you know, he's he's learned a lot in this process. Now, keep in mind, this guy, this guy stepped right basically off the field into the into the dugout as a manager, replacing one of the greatest managers in the history of our game, and and led through that transition. Not easy to do. Very tough challenge, as we all know. I didn't have the guts to to stay in Atlanta and, and follow after John Scherholz's footsteps. So I understand kind of, you know, the, the mental uh, uh, gymnastics that you play and, and the hurdles that you have to get through when you're following a legend. And he won every single year. He went through a, a tough season, and he would probably tell you, maybe he didn't communicate as well as he needed to. Maybe he, he kind of... Uh, you know, went into a shell or in a defensive type mode as he tried to fight through it uh, and experience something for the very first time, failing as a as a, as a manager and the with as it comes to wins and losses anyway. And so he he would share those things with you if asked. Um, but um, you know, you, you don't make these decisions in a vacuum, as you know, John. Um, you seek counsel from people. Of course, we we are going through an ownership change here. John Sherman will have an opportunity, as he should, and as we desire him to um, give his input. 
with with what we're going to do with this very key and important position uh, going forward. But again, I mean, that's you asked me a direct question about about our people, and and uh, you know, I, I'm going to do everything we can in, in a leadership role to make sure that the the truth is stated and uh, people know the value of not only Mike Matheny but all of our people. Hey, Dayton, before you go, I got one last quick one for you, and, and it's kind of off the grid here, but, you know, you guys, when you won it in 2015 and you almost won it in 2014, it, it was pretty much that conga line of just getting guys on base, getting them around and in. You didn't necessarily have to outslug anybody. And now everybody is saying, well, since then, I think the number is if you out-homer your opponent in the postseason, you're 67 and 14. So everybody is saying, well, the heck with that, you know, that, that Royals model 2015, it's not working anymore. Is that true? I mean, or, or is there still something to that paradigm that if you get guys on base, know how to get them around and in, you're going to win in October? Well, great question, but let me ask you this. The games are going to be played today. Try to write the script. Try to predict the outcome of what's going to happen in the next playoff game before you turn the television on. You simply do not know. Therefore, you have to win in multiple ways. There's times in a baseball game where you simply cannot strike out. And we can talk about those examples uh, at some other time. But there are times in a game where you can't strike out. Certainly, you get back into a game by by hitting a, a three-run homer. You pad your lead by hitting a three-run homer. That's it's an important part of it. You have to be able to go first to third if you're going to be successful. You've got to get as many guys in the scoring position as possible if you're going to be successful and win. There, the other part of from a defensive standpoint, there's no routine play in the playoffs. I saw it for 12 and a half years when I was with the Braves, almost 13 years, playoffs every year. Plays just weren't what, what, what were routine during the regular season weren't routine in in the playoffs. And what I learned in that process was over 162 games in the regular season, you have to go out and you have to perform at a level where you have to go win the game. You got to go take it. You got to go win it. Games aren't lost. You have to go win them. In the playoffs, oftentimes they're lost. The other team fails to execute a play, they don't turn a double play or uh, a, a miscommunication in the outfield or routine ground balls are bobbled, throws are offline, balls aren't picked, balls aren't blocked, uh, uh, the catcher doesn't block a ball, somebody moves up, uh, errant throw into the – whatever the case may be, I can go on and on. There's no routine play in the playoffs. They're all crucial. And, and so you have to be able to win in multiple ways, in my opinion. And uh, the, the absolutes of the game are pitching. It always tilts the field in your favor. Steady, consistent, routine defense. Uh, don't allow the batter runner to move up into scoring position. Uh, execute uh, offensive strategy. You can't strike out in certain situations. I mean, we, we, the, the only World Series the Braves were able to win, David Justice, I believe, popped a two-run homer. And we ended up winning the game 2-0 or 2-1 or whatever it was at the time. I can't recall all the specifics and the details. But, you know, home runs have always been a huge part, a 
a change in the momentum of the game, as it has great defensive plays. You know, I think you're the only executive I can name that's won uh, got into the World Series twice from a small market. So I think you are the expert on this. I'm going to ask you three couple interconnected type questions. Uh, we know that you're rebu- rebuilding, although a lot of good things happened this year with Dozier and uh, Mondesi and people stepping forward. Solaire, that trade looked fantastic right now. Um, you know, what's uh, the Royals' timetable, do you think, for for becoming a contender again uh, and also somewhat related. Uh, what do you think the chances are for a downtown stadium I, that might improve your revenue? And, you know, everybody's been focused on Whit Merrifield, who has turned into a star for you guys because uh, he's kind of a late bloomer, you know, around 30 years old. And some people say he's not in your timetable and you, he, he's going to be traded. Well, you've resisted that to this point. Uh, is there still a chance that he could be traded? Well, well, let me just say this. I mean, as you know, John, I mean, nobody's untouchable. And you you have to be very open-minded with opportunities that make sense. I mean, I don't know what opportunities are going to be presented for the Kansas City Royals, you know, this offseason and as we head into the trade deadline in, in 2020. I mean, you just do not know. And so you're always open-minded. Uh, you, you, you try to, to figure out who you match up with. And, of course, Whit Merrifield is a very attractive player. He can do a lot of things. He's an absolute winner. Somebody that uh, that I admired greatly uh, on the field, off the field. I mean, he's just a special, special talent. He's a special person. I mean, I love his competitiveness. I can't say enough great things about him. But so that's why he fits for us, and 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 for us to to go out and, and be a championship caliber team again. Um, as far as our our timeline, I think it's I think it's absolutely so important for you to think you're going to win every single year. And if you don't think you're going to win, I know one thing, you won't. It's hard enough to win when you think you have everything in place. Again, 14 division titles, one World Series. It's hard to, to win. It's, it's, it's hard to, to win a championship. And so you have to feel it and believe in it, especially at the leadership level. We're not, we're not tanking. We're not, we're not rebuilt. We're, we're going, doing everything we can to win each and every day with the players that we have. Bill LaJoy told me when I was a farm director, he said he had a little saying on his desk, and it simply said this, major league players aren't paid to play, they're paid to win. And, and so I've always believed in that philosophy. So when you match up and look at things realistically in this time of year, it's painful to watch other teams play in postseason. It really is. Okay, and and one of the important things of, of development and, and leadership is to always evaluate yourself honestly. Okay, and so I'm looking at some of the teams in the playoffs, and if I'm looking at it honestly, we got a ways to go. We we really do, uh, especially when it comes to uh, our pitching. Again, I really like our position players a great deal. So, but we're going to put the best team we can on the field with whatever. Mr. Sherman says ultimately our budget is, and we're going to go out and we're going to expect to win because they're major league players and that's what they're paid to do. And so that's that will be the mindset going forward. John, I can't predict if we're going to be back in the playoffs next year, the following year, or the year after. The only thing I can predict is we're going to do everything we can to put players on our field that, that believe in winning, believe in the importance of, of being a great teammate, believe in the importance of connecting with our community and inspiring young people to want to play this game. And that's how the game will continue to grow and be the game that you enjoy and I enjoy 
and that hopefully our kids and grandkids can enjoy. Uh, such a thoughtful answer from a, a great guy. Dayton Moore, thank you for everything, buddy. Continued success. Go get him. We will uh, do this again sometime, I hope. I appreciate you, my friend. Yeah, always, guys. Thanks. Have a great day. Very cool. Uh, took a lot of time for us. That's great. We'll do the same with Anthony DeComo, another guy who gets it. And uh, he, covering the Mets, has had a lot to get. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So we're joined now by Anthony DeComo, the great Mets beat writer for MLB.com. Comes on the podcast at uh, quite a time for the franchise here, Anthony. The uh, the Mickey Calloway dismissal. Uh, let's start there, obviously. Was this just inevitable? I mean, it was going to happen, and, and it happened quickly, at least. Yeah, I think so. I mean, to be honest, I was somewhat surprised it didn't happen earlier in this season. There were a couple of different inflection points there where you, know, you easily could have said, okay, Mickey's gone, and I don't think anyone would have been particularly surprised, but they did ride it out with Mickey. They wound up having that good finish to the season that I think put at least some doubt in people's minds that Mickey you know, might be back, but in the end, uh, the Mets went with the less surprising option, which was that they did fire him, and uh, yeah, now we've got a laundry list of candidates, potential candidates, people coming in. Um, this is the third straight October the Mets will be searching for a top baseball executive. It was Mickey two years ago. Last year it was Brody Van Wagenen, and now Van Wagenen has a chance to make uh, his most impactful hire. So we'll see how it goes. But to answer your question, yeah, I think it was just based on the sum of the two years, it was kind of that this was Mickey's time. Hey, Anthony, John Heyman here. Uh, you mentioned the laundry list, so I'll mention a few names, and you tell me where you think things stand and which way you think it will go, ultimately. I mean, obviously, we've heard uh, Carlos Beltran's name mentioned, and we've uh, I know John Franco has said that he'd have an interest. Uh, David Cohn has come out and said he's had an interest. He'd have an interest. Uh, and we hear about names of up-and-comers like Joe Espada, but we also hear uh, inexperienced uh excuse me, experienced names like Joe Girardi, Buck Showalter, John Gibbons, Robin Ventura. Uh, I mean, that's a small list. I think their list is probably 50 names or something like that. Who, who do you see as somebody who's on the list and uh, someone who's going to get an interview? And who do you predict ultimately will get the job? Well, it's interesting, John, that you know those names that you just threw out there, it's a pretty wide cross-section of, of baseball. You've got experienced guys who have managed for, for decades, You've got guys who have never managed and everything in between. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think the Mets are planning to bring in a lot of people with a lot of different levels of experience, a lot of different philosophies. Uh, this is kind of what they did with the GM search was they just brought in this, they cast a super wide net and it wound up being uh, kind of an off the wall candidate, Brody Van Wagen and in the end, a guy who had no GM experience. Now that doesn't mean that's what they're going to do for manager. I actually think, they will lean towards someone with experience. I think Joe Girardi is the name that makes a lot of sense. Uh, if you put a gun to my head right now, uh, he would be the guy that I would guess. I, I just think given his unique blend of experience, a guy who has won a World Series, who knows what it is to win in New York, uh, who is widely looked upon as a very, very good game manager, in-game manager, which is something that I would call a weakness of maybe Callaway's. Uh, you put all those together, and I think it's the type of package the Mets are looking for. I think Joe Girardi has kind of hinted uh, quite a few times now that he's interested in the job and, and will certainly come in. So I think that's an automatic interview and could ultimately be the guy. But there's a lot of wild cards out there. Um, you mentioned Joe Espada. That's a very interesting one. A guy who's never managed before, but a guy who is the bench coach for A.J. Hinch, who is pretty much best friends with Brody Van Wagen. And I think if Brody had his way, you'd have A.J. Hinch in here managing the Mets next year. That's not going to happen. But maybe Joe Espada is the next next best thing 
in his eyes. Um, you know, Buck Showalter is an interesting one. Obviously, he, he's you know hasn't managed now for a couple of years, but uh, a guy who has as much experience as pretty much anyone in the game. Uh, would his philosophies and that kind of strong will that we all know that he has with that mesh with a front office that likes to kind of be in charge of things and, and it has become the way not just here but around baseball? We'll see. I think certainly there will be some some interest there. Uh, one name you didn't mention, John, that I think is an interesting in-house one is Luis Rojas. And uh, he's he was the quality control coach, just got on the big league staff last year. Uh, he's part of that magnificent Alou baseball family. Is Moises Alou's brother, Felipe Alou's son. Um, he's a name to watch. I'm not sure the Mets consider him quite ready to manage just yet, uh, but he's a rising star in the organization. I would guess he'll get an interview as well and maybe could end up uh, getting a promotion on the staff after all this, a bench coach, something like that. Anthony DeComo visiting with us. And just curious, where do you think Mickey Calloway goes next? I mean, he was a really good pitching coach. I have to think that at some point he walks back in that door for somebody, right? Yeah, that's the whole reason he got hired in the first place was his work as pitching coach for the Indians. He did a great job. For five years there, um, you know, brought them within a couple of outs, really, of a of a World Series title in, in 2016. So I think there will be interest in his service. I think it will be more up to Mickey if he wants to take a year off and, and relax and, and chill after that experience in New York, or if he wants to dive right back into it. I think off the top of my head, there's, uh, what, five pitching coach vacancies around the game already. So certainly anyone searching for a pitching coach this winter will have Mickey Callaway on their list. I asked Mickey if he has interest in, in diving right back into it or not. And he said, I, I really haven't decided yet, and we'll see. And I think surely that will depend on what opportunities come. But, yeah, I think down the line, if not this year, certainly in future years, there's going to be interest in, in having him be a pitching coach again. You know, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but what, and you weren't really involved in this. So this was uh, involved uh, Tim Healy from Newsday. But uh, what do you think happened that day? And was that, you know, I, I, from my understanding, all he said was, see you tomorrow, Mickey. Did he say in a, in a question, see, will we see you tomorrow? Or did, he, did Mickey take that as sarcastic, like, see you tomorrow, Mickey? Uh, and were there other episodes like this that we just didn't hear about? I mean, when I was there and I only – covered about 10 games this year. Uh, Mickey just seemed like a very nice, even keel guy. I'm not saying he was the perfect guy for New York and it certainly was a gamble to take him, but uh, he, I, I'm sh- I'm still shocked uh, about this blow up. And do you, do you think that ultimately had any, any uh, effect in terms of whether they were going to bring him back or not? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, John. And I mentioned earlier how there were a couple of times over the course of the season when the Mets, could have easily fired Mickey Calloway, and I don't think anyone would have said boo about it. And that was certainly one of those times after that whole episode in Chicago. I think at the end of the day, what you saw there was frustration boiling over. I don't think Tim Healy did anything all that wrong or untoward. Um, you know, it was not said in the question. It was not meant in a suggestive or a mocking way or anything like that. I think it was a typical, like, Hey, see you tomorrow. And this team that was in the midst of their annual June swoon and that was not doing well and that looked like uh, you know a team with playoff expectations that was just in free fall at that time, uh, something snapped and something was taken the wrong way. And you know, the way Jason Vargas reacted as well, I think kind of blew it up even more than it otherwise would have gotten blown up. But it's an example of, and I think Mickey Calloway uh, will agree with this, one day, if he doesn't already, it's an example of maybe not quite being a fit for this market in New York. 
this is a guy you know, who came from Cleveland from a much smaller market where he was pitching coach. And you don't have these crazy numbers of media members around you every single day. You don't have this criticism every single day. If you remember last year, uh, you know, Mickey Calloway talked about the challenges of New York and how it's different here. And he took some criticism at the time for kind of almost intimating that, you know, it was something that he wasn't expecting and something that he wasn't sure, you know, he was cut out to handle because I, I think, well, it does seem like it comes out of nowhere in the sense that I agree with you, John. Mickey Callow is a very nice guy. He was pretty professional in all of his dealings. I do think there was an undercurrent where he never quite wrapped his mind around this fact that even when we're winning and when we're going well from a Mets perspective, you know, there's still going to be criticism. There's still going to be people asking, why did you do this? Why did you do that? You know, what about this thing you did wrong in the fourth inning? And, and I think he never quite wrapped his mind around the fact that uh, that that's just part and parcel with, with what it takes to manage in New York and to be a leader here of a team in New York. Um, I, I think he took more offense to it than maybe some, some other managers would, or maybe even just some more experienced managers would. So I think all of that played in. And then when things started going really bad for the Mets this June, I, I think it just all came to a head. And that was just the spark that was lit over, over a, a fire that was waiting to, to burn anyway. Last one I've got for you, Anthony. You know, um, Pete Alonso kind of came out of nowhere to not only take over, I guess, the rooting interest of Mets fans, but my goodness, I mean, he's on late night TV. He's, he's all this star power, all this charisma. Uh, did you see that coming out of Pete Alonso? Not the 50-odd home runs. Nobody saw that coming, but the, the charismatic side of Pete Alonso. Well, yes and no, Josh. I, I... I've told the story a couple of times. I remember my distinctly remember my first conversation with Pete Alonso two springs ago. And I went over and he was in spring training tucked away and in the back of the clubhouse with the other prospects. And, you know, he was a a good prospect at the time, but not considered anything, anything crazy. And I went over and introduced myself and started, you know, talking baseball and all that. And, And 45 minutes later, I walked away shaking my head. Like, what did I just get into? He, cause he has that, passion for the game. He obviously has that gift of gab and, and will talk your ear off about baseball. So I knew that charisma was there, but even in a best case scenario where a guy goes out and has a great rookie season, you don't expect a player to become a clubhouse leader like he did in his very first year. And there's a million examples of how and why, but I think that's something that really until very recently, it was frowned upon for rookies to do. Um, and I think part of it was a perfect storm. He walked into a clubhouse that with David Wright gone had a little bit of a leadership vacuum and he was the perfect guy to fill that hole. And part of it was just the fact that a, he's a natural at this sort of thing. And B, he had not only a good season, but a historically good season for a rookie in major league baseball. So it all kind of coalesced together and, and became the guy that we see now, which is the guy that we're talking about after year one of his career. Like, could he be, the next Mets captain. That's when you take a step back, that's kind of crazy to talk about for a rookie, a guy that's got one year of major league service time. But when you see him on a day to day, you nod your head and say, yeah, I mean, for sure I could see it because that's the type of guy that, that he's been so far. So still obviously a long way to go before talk of that becomes real, but from a Mets perspective in another down year, a year which they missed the playoffs, Pete Alonso was by far the the brightest light and uh, the best hope for their future. 
Yeah, Anthony, Alonzo was fantastic. Uh, dealing with it, incredible, just a great guy. And uh, that was obviously a, a great move, not doing the service time manipulation and having him start with the team and having that had that full season and he'll win rookie of the year, as we know. 53 home runs, just amazing. I would also add DeGrom, uh, a likely Cy Young winner. Uh, so they had a few good things going on this year. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, first you mentioned uh, quickly on, on – uh, the captain, he could be a captain. I, I think you're writing a book on on David Wright, so, uh, so you must uh, be in touch with him. Any chance he would consider managing? That's one question. And then tell us a little about your book. And then also, uh, we we mentioned, of course, the great idea to have Alonzo play the whole season. How would you evaluate the, and this is a big question, uh, the Brody's first year, a lot of attention was paid to the unfortunate trade with Seattle, but uh, there were some good things that happened to Alonzo and some other things. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, with, with regards to David Wright, I asked him that exact question this week and he said, no, thank you. I, I'm very happy as, as much as it's flattering that people ask and uh, that people would want him to be a manager or even a coach on the Mets. Uh, he, he's very happy for now just being at home. He lives in the Los Angeles area uh, with his wife. He's got two young daughters and he's really not looking to do anything that intensive. Now, 20 years down the line, we'll see. But um, yes, we are working on a book and it should be a lot of fun. It's going to come out next summer, um, working hard on it now and, uh, hopefully giving some, some insight to the guy who, you know, in my opinion, is probably the most popular Met of all time and, and David Wright, number five. So it's a cool project. I'm excited about it. Uh, to answer your second question about Brody, you know, it, it was, it, it was nothing if not interesting his first year. And I think we all knew that. From the moment he came on, his first move wound up being that big splash of Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz. And obviously, that's the deal that he would love to have back at this point uh, because it not only hurt them this season with the poor production of, of Cano and Diaz, but also for years to come. They've got a lot more money on the books now with Robinson Cano's contract uh, for years to come. And we don't know what's going to happen with Edwin Diaz going forward, coming off the worst season of his career. But there were good things. There were good aspects, I would say. The decision to call up Pete Alonso on opening day was, was the first one and the best one. Um, you know, the Mets very easily could have, and in another world, very easily might have kept him down until well, three or four weeks have passed in, in April. And then all of a sudden, you're looking at a different narrative, a different story. And, and Pete Alonso was, as I mentioned, the brightest light for this Mets team. So it was, it was good for them to have him up all year. Uh, the other big one is J.D. Davis. Uh, this is a guy who – it was – a small risk, but a, a risky trade at the time with Houston. Um, acquiring J.D. Davis, not really knowing necessarily where he would fit or where they would play him, but he wound up having a great offensive year. Uh, he is a significant piece for this Mets team going forward, one of the better young hitters in the NL East right now. And uh, another guy who kind of emerged, uh, I don't know if a clubhouse leader, but a popular guy in that room, a guy who everybody likes in that room. Um, you know, good friends with Dominic Smith, you know, friends with Pete Alonzo, Jeff McNeil, all these. It's a young core that they have now with those guys and Ahmed Rosario offensively. And I think for the first time in a long time, you can look at this offense and say, OK, this is something they can work with going forward. They don't need to go out and make significant changes or a significant add to the offense. Uh, and J.D. Davis is a big part of that. So that was a good move for him. Good move for us, uh, Anthony, to uh, to say thank you because I got to get to John Heyman's insider nuggets. We got like a hundred other uh, managerial <laughs> situations to discuss, <laughs> but 
But you're you're amazing. Your your in depth knowledge of the Mets is is uh, just second to none. And congrats on the David Wright book. Can't wait to read it. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll come on again with you when we know what the Mets are doing. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having having me. That's beautiful. Thanks, Anthony, very much. And indeed, John Heyman's insider segment straight up. So before we dive in here and get to John in just a sec here, uh, you know, hiring can be a slow process. And Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, needed to hire a director of coffee. So he went to ZipRecruiter, posted his job, found the best person for the role in just a few days. How? ZipRecruiter's technology finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. It's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, try ZipRecruiter for free at the web address ZipRecruiter.com slash enter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash E-N-T-E-R. ZipRecruiter.com slash enter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So as we finish up, and things are quite in progress in the uh, division series as we actually do record this, and uh, you might be listening to it while the LCSs are already underway. So, uh, John, I'm not going to ask you too much about the actual playoffs because it might be a little less evergreen than we want. I do want to ask you, though, about all the, uh, the back and forth that's going on now with front offices trying to figure out what they're doing, uh, and, and I think I just kind of want to wind you up and let you go because there are so many decisions that have to be made now. Do they really get made? Do any of them get made this week while all this stuff's going on on field? Or do we wait until the end of October? You know, I think some decisions will be made, whether any are announced. I I couldn't swear to it. You know, I think there are two or three that are pretty easy that we could pretty well guess who's going to be the manager. And then there's several uh, that are wide open. It's funny that I say several, but there are seven openings as we speak now in Philadelphia still uh, not resolved, as I'm told. There's going to be a resolution this week. That sounds rather ominous. So we may get to eight. I'm not guaranteeing that, but it uh, seems like there's a good chance there will be eight openings at this point. Maybe not. Maybe Gabe Kapler will survive. Not sure. He's got one year. He's kind of in the Mickey Calloway situation where it's one year to go and you've kind of probably have to decide whether to give him an extension or to cut him loose. And uh, from what I understand, it's it's out of the hands of the uh, front office, meaning the ownership is probably making that decision. And uh, that may ultimately not be great news because the GM, as we had Matt Klintek on, uh, very, very much supportive of Gabe Kapler. I'm sure he's put in his more than two cents, but whether it saves him, I don't know. But uh, the Angels is probably the easiest one. Joe Madden interviewing early this week. Uh, it's either Monday or Tuesday at this moment. I'm not sure, but early. And uh, I haven't heard any other serious candidates for the Angels. Joe Madden was there for two decades as a minor league player and manager and as a major league coach, 2002, bench coach for the Angels for their World Series team. Uh, it, it will be an incredible upset if Joe Madden is not the manager of the Angels. Uh, he loves it there. It's already come out that that's his first choice. That's an odd thing to come out when you probably have other potential choices if you're sh- you're not sure that you've got a deal. So uh, I'm, we're pretty sure Joe Madden is going to be the Angels manager. Cubs, I think uh, Theo Epstein may have, might have given a tell when he referred to David Ross as Rossi, uh, showing that familiarity. And we all know that he loves David Ross. We can all remember him telling uh, Anthony Rizzo to breathe at the end of the World Series, the uh, jinx-breaking World Series, and uh, that certainly was a good recommendation for David Ross. Uh, Mark Loretta 
and Venable, their coach, coaches will um, interview as well. So uh, they're going to go in-house. But I, I think David Ross has a good chance there. Kansas City, uh, they, again, they're going to go in-house, I'm pretty sure. Mike Matheny, Dale Swain, Pedro Grafal, one of them will get the job. And from here, uh, Mike Matheny is the one with exper- most experience. And uh, it seems like he is the very likely uh guy who's going to get that job in Kansas City. The other ones are more wide open. I would I would say the Mets uh, and San Diego are probably going to go for experience after having a, a manager that was uh, less experienced and not ultimately getting uh, to achieve what they wanted to achieve. Mickey Calloway with the Mets and San Diego, Andy Green. Uh, I know that the Padres are doing their due diligence on Ron Washington. That's a possibility, but I I could also see potentially them looking at Mark Loretta or Katze if they do go uh, with the less experienced route. San Francisco, I've heard a lot about Katze potentially there. Raul Abanez is a possibility. Bob Guerin, they're going to talk to Hensley Mullins and Ron Wotus, who are part of their three championship teams. So uh, I'm not discounting them entirely, but there's a new regime in San Francisco. I think they'll go outside. Um, you know, I think Pittsburgh is maybe the least predictable. They could go in any one of a million directions. We don't know where they're going. Uh, who knows? And I'm not going to speculate on Philly yet because uh, as of this moment, uh, they don't have an opening. All right, so let me take this opening to ask you about guys that are pitching in the postseason right now, John, and either could opt out or are free agents, and they're certainly helping themselves a lot right now with what they're doing. Steven Strasburg springs to mind. His career postseason, you're talking about a 0.64 ERA four walks against 38 strikeouts. And Garrett Cole, the first time that he wandered out there to take on Tampa Bay, he got 31 swings and misses, I mean, which is just an insane (laughs) amount in seven innings of work. So uh, these guys are not exactly in in bad spots right now if they want to go somewhere else besides where they are. Yeah, Strasburg is in a very good spot, as you put it, uh, uh, with the opt-out. He's got two opt-outs. Actually, this is the first one. So um, it's certainly an interesting choice, $100 million for four, four years to go. Certainly not a poor salary. Nobody feeling sorry for him, but he probably can top that, and he probably will use that opt-out, I do believe. Uh, he's likely to be in the top five in Cy Young. I did have a vote. I won't I won't say where I voted, but he'll probably be, finish somewhere in the top five. I don't, I don't think he's going to win, but... Uh, being in the top five is pretty darn good, and um, he, again, had another great postseason start, which does not hurt. I mean, the big market teams that are most often in the postseason are looking for somebody who really answers the bell, and Strasburg has been fantastic in October uh, when he has pitched. So uh, I, I think he'll use that opt-out. Uh, it does seem like he probably wants to stay. He signed that long-term deal seven years early. He didn't wait to free agency last time. Uh, so uh, I think we l- think he likes it in Washington, uh, and there's a good chance he'll stay. But I, I do think he'll use that opt out. You know, times have changed since that. Granke was also 31 uh, at that same time, and Strasburg is 31 now. Got 206 million, but 206 million is, is a lot more than 100 million. So I, I'm going mm-hmm. to say Strasburg uses that. And just staying on Washington to close out here, John, and again, you know, when people are listening to this podcast, it's entirely possible that they know we don't right now if Washington moved on or did not move on. But will Anthony Rendon move on? Yeah, I mean, everything you hear is he loves it in Washington. Everything has obviously worked out fantastic there since he was a a first round, a high first round. He wasn't number one overall like Strasburg, wasn't Arbor before that, but he was a high first round. That's how you become a winner. It appears Houston had some very high first round picks and Washington obviously had the two number one picks. uh, and used him for Harper and Strasburg. Uh, Rendon, uh, by all accounts, likes it there. 
I think the issue there is uh, they offered him a deal. The Washington Post reported somewhere around 210 to 215 million for seven years. Uh, Arenado got 234 million for seven added on, and he wasn't a free agent. Now Rendon is a free. We have to consider him a free agent at this point. Uh, I mean, he's not technically he isn't quite a free agent. So I, I mean, I think he's going to be looking to beat that, and I understand that off the year that he had, he's likely to be third in. MVP voting, I think Bellinger and Yelich will probably be one, two, but he may get some votes for one. He may get some votes for two. He's had an incredible year. He's uh, very good and underrated defensively, and he certainly will have a market. There are a lot of great third basemen, and a lot of teams uh, are filled at third base. They don't need a third baseman, but there are enough big market teams that, uh, you know, and, and beyond the fact that Rendon's one of the top 10 players in baseball easily. Uh, he would do. He'll do spectacularly on the free agent market. Not ruling him out staying in Washington, but uh, and and you know they want to keep him badly. Um, but uh, there'll be other teams. Texas is a team that will look at third base. The Phillies, obviously, Michael Franco did not have a great year. Uh, look, could look at third base, and there there are a couple other teams. Not a long list of teams, but uh, the teams that need a third baseman are going to be interested in Anthony Rendon. All right, there you go. There's uh, quite a bit with John Heyman always getting you up to speed, and we appreciate it. John, same time next week, we'll do it again. We'll have trimmed four teams from our, our consciousness going forward here in the postseason, and maybe we'll have a managerial thought or two that's new at that point. But uh, meantime, thank you very much not only to you, but to our guests today. Appreciate you guys listening to Radio.com Sports Big Time Baseball, presented by Radio.com Sports. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast, just search Big Time Baseball. And please do follow on Twitter as well, at RDC Sports. Until next time, Josh Lewin, take care. This has been a presentation of Radio.com Sports. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.